Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Fever Dreams. Uh, my name's Will Summer. I'm a political reporter at The Daily Beast and the author of an upcoming book on QAnon for HarperCollins. And I'm Aswin Tseng, but please call me Swin. I'm a senior political reporter at The Daily Beast and co-author of the book Sinking in the Swamp. All right, here on Fever Dreams, we're going to take you on plunges into the sometimes hilarious and sometimes scary world of the American right as they continue to influence our politics. Even in the aftermath of the Trump administration, the energy of these conspiracy theorists, these grifters, and these influencers is still pushing our mainstream political landscape closer and closer to a breaking point. Fever Dreams listeners, we have some news to announce. In all of Will Summers' former reign as chieftain, of the Fever Dreams universe and podcast network. He never once got any fan mail from Alan Cumming or Alan Cumming's team. (laughs) That era has come to a shattering, blistering conclusion with the advent of the Kelly Weil era. Kelly, can you tell us how things have changed under your regimen? We are pleased to introduce our third co-host, esteemed actor Alan Cumming. No, but if folks remember last episode, We talked about a legal case that involved Alan Cumming and a chimpanzee for whom he advocated. Apparently, Alan Cumming's team is our Fever Dreams listeners, and they sent us his new memoir where he talks very movingly about his friendship with this chimpanzee. So thanks, gang. Thanks for listening. Right. And I don't know which of our listeners wouldn't be aware of this, but Alan Cumming truly is, in my humble opinion at least, one of the greatest actors of the 20th and 21st centuries. He's absolutely Undisputed king. Yeah, absolutely. Whether it's movies or Broadway, he just blows you away every time. He was definitely the best MC in the history of cabaret and all of its different iterations. I could go on and on and on. But can you explain to us a little bit about this passage of the memoir or a little bit about the fan mail that you received? Yeah, absolutely. So Alan starred in a movie, I think back in 99, alongside a chimpanzee named Tonka. He became very close friends with this chimpanzee. He writes about having this incredible bond that chimpanzees don't typically like to share their food, but they would sit there and pass a glass back and forth and drink from it together. And that after Tonka grew up and went back to his facility in Missouri, that Alan was always advocating for him, that Alan was always trying to find a way to remove him to a more sanitary, more spacious sanctuary in Florida. And listeners from last week might recall that the fate of Tonka is currently in dispute. He's trying to be moved to a Florida facility, but it's not actually clear if Tonka is alive. So One of the weirdest legal disputes and battles that you and I have seen in quite some years that is, of course, roped in FEMA and Alan Cumming. Because why not? Absolutely. It's a very bizarre one, but Tonka clearly has friends in high places. Okay, I got to check out this memoir now. I had no idea there was so much ape content in it. Anyway... (laughs) 
whole chapter. So I guess I kind of wanted to get into that because it's a much friendlier, much fluffier and softer topic to ease us into this next segment that we're about to get into, which is decidedly more depressing and more soul-rending in a lot of ways. Kelly, you've been doing a lot of reporting recently about how the MAGA and far-right stormtroopers are being sent in to bust up school boards, at the very least make their lives hell for indefinite periods of time. What's going on? How widespread is this? And just just how dangerous is this getting? Because this goes far beyond the realm of casual right-wing protest. That's right. This is so much weirder than the typical school board flare-ups that you may or may not have ignored for your entire upbringing in your hometown. It's even weirder than the anti-mass mandate stuff that's been going on for the past however many weeks or months at school boards across the country. It's like decidedly worse than that. That's right, because although a lot of this activism is nominally about mask mandates, it's now getting the weirdest and worst, most opportunistic wannabe politicians just grafting themselves onto these controversies. So just this weekend, a Republican nominee for a county-level seat in Pennsylvania, he he spoke at an anti-vax, anti-mask demonstration, and he had this to say about the school board that he would represent. Quote, I'm going in with 20 strong men. I'm going to speak to the school board and I'm going to give them an option. They can leave or they can be removed. And then after that, we're going to replace them with nine parents and we're going to vote down the mask mandates that evening. I mean, you kind of have to laugh, but that's also mm, just brown shirt tactics right there. So that kind fellow is Steve Lynch. He is running for office in Northampton County, Pennsylvania. He doesn't have any political experience, but his LinkedIn currently lists him as the owner of Keystone Alternative Medicine and Weight Loss. And one of his most recent posts on LinkedIn is him selling testosterone via a web form. So many roads to elected office. So this is the guy who wants to lead these quixotic coup d'etats against school boards who are not allowing America's children to, I don't know, like sneeze on each other enough during the pandemic? That's right. I mean, listen, if you can't trust the guy selling hormone therapy via LinkedIn, who are you going to really trust with your children's medical guidance? Okay, so he's the operator and owner at Keystone Alternative Medicine and Weight Loss. And about a year ago, he had this social media post, which you dug up here, that asks his followers, are you ready for elite human performance? Are you ready to reverse your biological age and increase energy? Are you ready to drive your partner wild again in the bedroom? <laughs> Where is he going with this? What are his solutions here? <laughs> Well, if you fill out this handy web form and I think give them some of your blood, they will send you what looks like testosterone therapy and some form of anti-aging cure online. It's the mojo injection, like the pink gooey mojo injection from the second Austin Powers movie. Is that what he's selling? Swin, as you know, I've never seen a movie, but that sounds about right. <laughs> so these are the would-be planners of public health, but it's not really a joke because School board meetings across the country have actually resigned this year, quite a lot of them, with some leaving pretty blistering resignation letters on their way out. Right, right. I mean, the Steve Lynch guy, he is too easy to laugh at. He's a doofus fascist wannabe. He's just this dipshit. I mean, he's a caricature brought to life. But at the same time, let's not give him too much oxygen right now, because as you were just about to get into, there are real consequences here. And there are people whose families are being targeted by, if not him, guys just like him. Is that correct? 
That's right. There was a former school board member in Nevada who wrote this really heartrending letter after he resigned this summer. He says he was doxxed. He received a barrage of phone calls and messages. His school board meetings were stormed by adults who don't even have children in the district. And I want to read part of his resignation letter where he talks about why he quit. He says, quote, it started with suicidal ideations. I did not want to exist anymore and felt things would be better if I just disappeared. I was feeling more depressed and anxious than I had in my teenage years. Then it led to chronic panic attacks so bad that on two occasions, I thought I was having an actual heart attack. At one point, I didn't want to leave my house anymore. I was constantly looking over my shoulder. The anticipation alone of attending another board meeting, being in the same room with folks who would likely be happy if I dropped dead, triggered severe emotional responses for me. So, I mean, that's kind of a logical response, I think, to months of people telling you that you're participating in a Chinese communist mind control plot to enslave the children. I don't think that's weird at all. Right. And how many other cases have you documented of these people resigning or having to perhaps seek out additional security for their families, maybe move out of their residence for a little while. How much of that is going on right now? There are a number of resignations. There was, I believe it was a Wisconsin school district that had three members of the same board just quit saying, these are all former educators. They didn't get in into this game for politics or for the glory of being on a school board. They want to do their best and they're not here to have these combative meetings every month. I found one actually on the other side of the aisle, a Republican who resigned after narrowly losing an anti-mask vote. And he actually said something that I think would resonate with both sides. And he said that this debate is just destroying friendships. I don't feel like I can talk to folks anymore. Just the tenor of the debate has become unbearable. So people are burning out and they're dropping out. Right. And just be clear, this is a debate over a harmless piece of cloth or a tiny bit of PPE that would go over your face and nose. That's right. This is something that the CDC recommends. Pretty much all teacher unions say, please, please, please have students and teachers wear this in school because you know, we're seeing more child hospitalizations with Delta. Like it's no joke. It's the bare minimum it's that you could ask minimum. of people during a massive historic public health emergency and still ongoing crisis. And it just more and more underscores to me about how for so many years that we've been alive, there would be these decrepit right-wing commentators who every time they saw a college kid do something that they didn't like, they would go on TV or they'd jump on the airways of Fox Business as a guest or whatever and talk about how whatever happened to the times of World War II or of decades of yore when Americans could band together and do hard things. This generation would never be able to defeat the Nazis in a war because they just need a safe space. How many times have you heard that? So often. You've heard that, we've heard that time <laughs> a billion times over the past God knows how many years. And then when an actual historic crisis actually does befall the country, which you actually might in some weird way compare to other major crises of past decades or centuries. People are asked to do the bare minimum of things like socially distance from time to time. And also, hey, could you put on a mask when you walk into your local Arby's or Kroger? And these idiots who for decades lambasted a college kid they didn't like for being like a pussy who would never stand up for America or do anything worthwhile, wants to stage a fascist coup because the school board says, oh, yo, maybe the kids and the school teachers should... I don't know, 
mask up for a few hours a day. It's that more than anything proves their original bad faith point that, yes, actually, in a way, you are correct that Americans aren't able to band together to do hard things anymore. It's just that you have the roles reversed. It's, it's just nuts. I mean, if you talk to any kid, like the masking isn't really an issue. Like kids wear lousy uniforms. I remember going on a class trip and they- Oh, did you wear uniforms when you were in school? Not in my school, no. But I remember going on a class trip where they mandated maybe the most embarrassing day glow t-shirts. And what do you know? Everyone did it. So if everyone commits to it, it's really not a big deal. But then you've got these parents at school board meetings or not even parents, onlookers from the outside kicking and screaming. And it's kind of the opposite of how I would counsel a child to behave. On the ever-expanding topic of of expanding right-wing hysteria in this country, we of course have people like our favorite congressman, Madison Cawthorn. Did you watch the video of him lauding the January 6th rioters as political prisoners? Yes. What did he call them? Political hostages or something? It's like, is that what we're going to call people who are arrested now? Because I'm going to go down to Arby's and I'm going to just help myself to some fries by the handful. And like when they arrest me, I'm just going to call it a hostage situation. Like words do matter here because there's this huge, actually fairly moneyed attempt to exonerate capital rioters. And to hear it come from someone whose building was the target of this siege is just unconscionable. And they know exactly what they're doing. Well, he doesn't care. He's just posting. He's posting in real time. This is what he got elected for. This is what his voters crave. They probably love it. Also, political hostages, he means political prisoners. I think he might have also said political prisoners, but he might have flipped back and forth. But he doesn't actually mean political hostages. That actually sounds dumb in this current context. There is a term that they use for situations like he is imagining this is, and it's political prisoners. He's not even getting that right. That's correct. Yeah, no, I have seen the political prisoner term rolled out constantly now. They're almost trying to meme it into existence for these defendants. And by the way, so many of them are getting actually fairly light sentences when they're pleading guilty, you know, getting misdemeanors for trespassing, that sort of thing. So just to weaponize this language is actually very, very relevant for a lot of people who face arguably First Amendment cases in the country, people who are arrested during protests, people who are surveilled, uh, pipeline protesters, Black Lives Matter protesters, to roll that language out for people who are involved in an attack on the Capitol is just beyond cynical. And you would never, ever see it deployed in that way for college students who are chaining themselves to an oil pipeline in the futile attempt that it gets shut down. Right. And look, unfortunately, it is becoming more and more a mainstream conservative principle right now to stick up in one form or another for January 6th riders. That's obviously former President Trump has been leading the charge on that. It very much so is not just confined to people like him or Madison Cawthorn. It is what it is. It's pathetic, but it's becoming more and more a mainstream thing. But the thing that Cawthorn said in that video, and we can play a clip of it in just a moment, that went even farther than that, which is not quite as mainstream right now, which is actually worse than the bullshit we were talking about earlier, is he was asked a question. We we can play it right here. Uh, 
working on that one. I, I don't have an answer to that one right yet. But, uh, ma'am, we are actively working on this. We have a few plans in motion that I can't make public right now. Um, but this is something that we're working on. There are a lot of Republicans who don't want to talk about this because, you know, they say, oh, that, that, that's too controversial. What's controversial is we have 536 people who are being held in solitary confinement for 23 hours out of the day who are not being allowed to be able to have religious freedoms, who are having their rights stripped away from them, not being able to capable of being able to have someone come represent them. It, it's political hostages. And this is something that when I first started hearing about, I was like, no way that's going on. But my friends, I'll tell you, with the small amount of investigating we've done, it is going on. It is a problem. But we all work. And I'll take one last question. So what did you hear in that exchange, Kelly? Because what I heard was someone asking, when are you going to bring people back to Washington, D.C., potentially to do something similar to what they did on January 6th to continue fighting for the absolute lie that Donald Trump actually won the 2020 presidential election? And this congressman saying, oh, yeah, we're working on it, as opposed to doing what any person, even in his far right situation, should do, which is say we have to act peacefully and the way to win is to vote, blah, blah, blah. There are so many efforts right now to hold renewed rallies in support of or in echoes of the January 6th riot. That includes this coming month or Tomorrow, when this episode broadcasts, it will be this month, an effort to hold a D.C. rally around where the initial January 6th rally was in support of January 6th defendants. This is not some distant event that they are trying to bury and move on from to save face. They're glorifying it. They're trying to revive it and to make it a recurring event. It's an installation in a series of these attacks. And you can even see that in the opposite direction. In the lead up to the January 6th riot, there were multiple DC protests, so to speak, stop the steel rallies, things attended by Proud Boys, things that got really, really rowdy. These events are sequential. They build on each other until there is something that gets them a little bit of bad publicity. They have to say, oh, we don't condone exactly that. Then they go and they try and free the people who are facing charges for it. They glorify them and the cycle renews again. Right. And obviously people like Madison Cawthorn, if they got called on video like that emerging, obviously one of the first things they'd say is, oh, we're calling for a peaceful rally or quote unquote, another peaceful rally. Don't be hysterical about it. It's like, fuck off, dude. We know what you're talking about. We know what you're glorifying. And it's not someone unwilling to give up their seat at a counter of a diner. Right. They Every time they call for these quote-unquote peaceful rallies, they get 20 people who are like our friend that we just discussed in Pennsylvania who's talking about bringing people to forcibly enact change in the legislature. So they know their audience. They know what their audience wants to do. So Swin, for the first time in 20 years, we're out of Afghanistan And there are already the rumblings from the far right of wanting to jump right back in. What is Trump saying about the end of the occupation? Well, it's not just Trump. It's not just the far right. But again, a recurring theme on this podcast is that what you would think could be maybe extreme or a little bit extreme, the more and more we talk about, the more and more it's just mainstream conservative movement and Republican Party position. Now, I want to issue all the usual caveats, and this applies to every time we talk about what's going on in Afghanistan. The quote-unquote war 
has been ended by President Joe Biden. But he has explicitly said and has exercised the right to do so at least a couple of times in recent days. Joe Biden has gone out there and repeatedly said, explicitly signaled that I, Joe Biden, and future presidents of the United States reserve the right to attack and bombard and drone strike Afghanistan, basically whenever the hell I feel like it, whenever I say I want to or claim it's in America's national security interests. So it's funny to me when we talk about this pullout and this withdrawal and the war ending where, I mean, I don't see how you could say with any objective metric that the U.S. involvement and war in Afghanistan has truly come to an end if the leader of the free world continues to reserve the right to attack and bomb it whenever he damn well pleases. That's right. I mean, on our way out, we effectively bombed a family of 10 under the guise of attacking ISIS. So that sword is kind of still dangling there. Yes. The drone strike you're talking about is just one data point of many, many, many data points over the years about how so much of the cost has been offshored onto in terms of the theater of war in Afghanistan, the Afghan people, Afghan civilians, and completely off of the United States, and where the human cost of the war has completely been offshored onto the Afghan people, Afghan civilians, and to a point where the American media-consuming public does not have to worry about it all that much, much to their shame. But anyway, getting that out of the way, the quote-unquote war has ended, the ground troops are out, and the withdrawal has concluded as of August 31st in Afghanistan. That's obviously not nothing. And with that removal of American ground troops, there are abundant calls in recent days from prominent Republicans asking, okay, when are we going to reinvade the country again? When are we going to take Bagram? When are we going to flood the country again with combat troops? When are we going to get the bloodstained revenge that we think we desperately deserved as Americans. You have your Lindsey Graham saying this, Kevin McCarthy, Ben Sass, Senator Marsha Blackburn, Mitch McConnell, Dan Crenshaw, H.R. McMaster, Trump ally and ex-New York City police commissioner Bernie Carrick said recently that Trump would, quote, carpet bomb the fuck out of Afghanistan right now. You have chronic asshole and conservative commentator Todd Starnes advocating for mass murder and destruction of Afghan civilian populations and wiping entire cities off the map in the South Asian country. So the bloodlust is going very strong in recent days, especially after that horrific attack at Kabul airport that left 13 Americans dead and numerous Afghans killed as well. But as the days have gone on since last week's attack, Trump himself, not just his compatriots in the party, but Trump himself has gotten more and more into this idea of reinvading Afghanistan at the same time while he's talking about, oh, I wanted to withdraw the whole time. It's a parallel track of cognitive dissonance that he just won't let die. Yeah, I mean, Trump's statement is internally contradictory, right? He's saying that if we do not get every penny of the $85 billion that we spent on the Afghan army back, which is sunk cost, folks, we know that when we have our just staggering military budget that we're offloading that, or if we do funnel it back, it's usually through, uh, you know, defense contractors in Northern Virginia. But he's saying that if we don't get all of that back, we should be able to, quote, at least bomb the hell out of it, it being Afghanistan. Then he says, 
Nobody ever thought such stupidity as this feeble brain withdrawal was possible. This is the same former president who was recently taking credit for the withdrawal. So that's a even within that statement. Right, accusing Biden of not getting out fast enough this year. That's right. Yeah. So, I mean, even within that statement, he wants it both ways. He wants to be the one ending forever wars and he wants to keep that stream of bloodlust and just sheer exploitation running all the way through what he hopes will be a 2024 campaign. Right. And his written statement that his team released on Monday also advocates that the United States should go back into Afghanistan to retrieve all the military equipment and get it returned to the United States, which is like, I know he probably doesn't put that much thought into his statements, but how long does he think that's going to take? Like five days? Maybe a fortnight? Like You just need a lot of strong men and you carry the aircraft out over the mountains and uh, there you go. You can do it with one, maybe two SEAL Team 6s and none of them <laughs> will die. It'll be great. No, what he's proposing but doesn't have the intestinal fortitude to actually say he's proposing is that, oh, because I think America has been dishonored, I want to send in God knows how many ground sh- troops and commandos to retrieve I don't know, every single meaningless bullet that is still hanging out there in the Afghan war zone. And I guess I wouldn't mind if a bunch of them got blown up in the process. Right. Sending 20-year-olds to die to get some night vision goggles off a Taliban guy. That ship already sailed. Right. And what's going on now, not just with Trump, but in the Republican Party, where they cannot seem to land on the same page with regards to whether it was best for us to get out of there or we need to go back in and reinvade, or maybe some weird in-between area, which just doesn't make sense. It reminds me a lot of what Trump did when he was running for president in 2015 and 2016, where he would run as the quote-unquote anti-Iraq war candidate and talked repeatedly about ending our endless wars. But at the same time, when he would trot out there on TV phone interviews or big MAGA rallies or whatever, he would constantly drop these policy prescriptions that whether he knew it or not was advocating re-invading Iraq for things like taking the oil and securing the oil fields and getting the imperial spoils that we deserve without maybe realizing that you can't really do that without reinvading a country? Like, how do you think you're going to do that? Like, send some FedEx guys over there to do it? Right. It's this contradictory America first thing, right? Where they want to be seen as isolationists prioritizing the American people. But so much of that idea of empire is built up on, you know, imperialist fantasies on Trump's idea of making America internationally respected again with, you know, that implicit military might. So those two things can't really honestly be held in parallel. They can't do a simple withdrawal. We should have hit that country years ago and hit them really hard and then let it rot. But we should have never done what we did. That was a bad, bad decision. But somebody's calling shots or a group. And beyond what he's saying in public, I had some reporting at the Daily Beast just a few days ago about how in private, the former president has at times been rather graphic about descriptions of what he claims he'd do if he were still at the heights of executive power in America right now, which includes having American killers running out there back to Afghanistan, I don't know, doing some commando shit that he has in his head that he's learned from God knows how many Hollywood movies to eliminate dozens, if not hundreds of the enemies for every single American who has been killed or harmed during this crisis. I feel like a lot of Trump's perception, including when he was president about what the American military can 
or can't do is informed by what he has seen in any number of Rambo sequels. Like, he really thinks it's as easy as just going in there, doing a bunch of badass shit, and then getting out, and everything will be fine. It's like a John Woo movie, I guess. Not realizing that if what he actually wanted to do was willed into existence, he would get so many more of our men and women in uniform killed, not to mention how many Afghans in the process. But having said that, the reason I think this is important is not just that we're talking about the bloodlusting fantasies of a former president right now. He is someone who quite possibly, maybe not, but very likely is going to be running in 2024 for president. He is still the leader of the Republican Party. And the Republican Party, in terms of their messaging on Afghanistan and what troops should or shouldn't be there, are largely following Donald Trump's lead in here. And what Donald Trump is doing is he is communicating where the GOP should go now in the short term as it relates to foreign policy. Because he and others, at the very least, instinctively know that they are not going to be able to outflank President Biden on actually ending war. That is something that Donald Trump's administration tried to outflank the left on for a period of time. But hey, four years passed and they obviously didn't do it. And in some cases, they did the opposite of that. So they're not going to outflank Biden on that. They're not going to outflank the Democrats on that. But what he and so many others have picked for the natural next course for the Republican opposition is to tell their fans that once they are back in power, they will do everything they can to satisfy your bloodlust and try to reclaim your fictitious or imagined honor, and at least talk a big game, even if they don't mean it, about all the ways that they could reinvade Afghanistan. That's how much they care about the people and the women of Afghanistan. It's never been about them. They just want to defend the honor of the MAGA and Republican base, which, as we know, is largely made up of boat and car dealership owners whose sons and daughters no longer return their calls at Christmas time. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Fever Dreams, like all Daily Beast journalism, exists because of the generous support of Beast Inside members, the people who pay to access Daily Beast reporting and who are, quite frankly, our favorite people on the face of the planet. Want to get in on all the action? Join now and get unlimited access to Beast reporting, plus access to members-only podcast episodes, events, and much more. Head to feverdreams.thedailybeast.com today to see what you've been missing. Today's Fever Dreams guest is none other than Matt Gertz, a senior fellow at Media Matters for America. A distinguished chronicler of conservative media for many years, Gertz served as a meticulous resource during the Trump presidency in documenting how any number of right-wing sales pitches traveled from the airwaves of Fox News into Trump's brain, straight into the then president's Twitter feed, and then into the actual policymaking process of the U.S. federal government. You can follow him at Matt Gertz on Twitter.com, a website on which he is frequently mistaken for scandal-plagued Congressman Matt Gates, much to my sadistic enjoyment and pleasure. 
Congressman Matt Gertz, welcome to Fever Dreams, and have you resigned yet? <laughs> Not yet. I'm glad that I can bring so much pleasure to you and everyone else on that godforsaken website. Okay, but just before we get into what we actually brought you on to talk about, how much of a problem is this still? I know I make fun of you a lot for it. You've been on CNN's Reliable Sources with Brian Stelter to briefly talk about this very subject of mistaken identity. How much of it is actually an issue or an inconvenience in your life? Oh, I mean, it's still a pretty constant flow of tweets uh, coming across my mentions. At this point, it's become a little bit confusing for me because there are some people who are uh, in on the joke and are sort of tweeting at me while pretending they're tweeting at Matt Gates. That that includes me, of course. That includes you. And sometimes those people end up fighting with other people who are in on the joke, but don't realize that the other person is in on the joke. And so they're trying to correct someone who is trying to do a joke. It's It's fairly baffling. But yes, there is still a it is fairly frequent for me to get tweets that are intended for someone else and that call me a pedophile, which is not ideal. I mean, it's not it's not what you want in your Twitter mentions, but uh, it's my burden to bear, I guess. I feel like Matt Gates owes you like workers comp or something, a, a couple vacation days. You know, he's in the early stages of this. He tried to play along with the joke and I just completely ignored him because I think that he's a fairly reprehensible person that I, I don't want. To wait, wait, did he like start DMing you or something? Like, No, no, no. He was quote tweeting me jokingly about the situation and I just ignored him completely. I don't really want to have like a fun story about me and the Congress and our strange Twitter hijinks. I, I think right. Is. We're firmly laughing at him, not with him. Yes, I think that's correct. Well, you should really start DMing him and uh, emailing him about this because one day those documents could end up in, in a court record of some sort, maybe one day. I don't think so. But the thing that I always thought about but decided would probably not be a good idea would be to start DMing someone like Don Jr., pretending to be the congressman and seeing how long I could sort of play that out before he realized it. He seems pretty dumb. I think it would work, but perhaps a poor idea. Twitter is censoring you by slightly changing the spelling of your last name, and we need Don's <laughs> help to fix it. <laughs> well, speaking of poor ideas, you have been tracking this ongoing, very sad, very depraved trend of anti-vaccine and anti-mask conservative radio hosts in different places across the United States and also local leaders who are also waging anti-vaccine and anti-mask wars of their own in different parts of the country. There's been an ongoing trend and a surge recently of a number of these guys. I'm not talking like one or two. It's becoming a way more conspicuous trend than that, getting hospitalized and in many cases succumbing to and dying from COVID-19 after many weeks or months of telling their audience or their fan base that the vaccines are dangerous and you shouldn't take them and that anybody who wants to put a mask on you or your children during this pandemic is a Nazi, blah, 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 all the usual complete anti science horseshit. And yet there continues to be this parade of just maddening local news stories where they or their families are talking to local media about how 
actually this guy ended up catching COVID-19 and he's now dying or dead. There was this one of one of many horror stories that have come out in recent days was printed on August 28th by the Daytona Beach News Journal with the headline after three week COVID-19 battle, Daytona Beach talk radio host Mark Bernier dies. And what do you know? This guy was one of the ones who was going on the airwaves telling a bunch of his listeners do not get vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, I've lost track really, of the number of low-level Republican celebrities and conservative media figures who have been hospitalized or died during the pandemic in recent weeks. The one that really struck me, I think, was Phil Valentine, who's a conservative talk radio host out of Tennessee. He expressed skepticism about the vaccines. He, When he contracted the virus told his listeners that a doctor had gotten him a prescription for ivermectin, which is a, an antiparasite drug that's become very popular in a certain section of the right wing as a potential COVID cure, even though it doesn't appear to actually work. And once he was stricken, once he was hospitalized, his brother came out and said, look, he's regretful. He wasn't a more vocal advocate of vaccination. For those listening, I know if he were able to tell you this, he would tell you, go get vaccinated, quit worrying about the politics, quit worrying about all the conspiracy theories. And then he died of COVID-19 last month. There are so many stories like this. I will say it's notable that they're almost all local. The national uh, right-wing media figures, I assume- They're all vaccinated. They're quietly vaccinated. They will not come out and they will not publicly say, we took this shot and you should definitely take this shot. You at home who trusts me, who is listening to this show, you should get vaccinated. They won't do it. It's just so disgusting the way they have, they're not good people. Is what I'm saying. You'd think that in a sane world, Herman Cain's death, what a year ago now, would have underscored to some folks in that world that this is a serious disease. Obviously, he died before a vaccine was readily available, but rather than support the measures that were available at the time, masking, distancing, Herman Cain's Twitter, I think, turned around and continued on COVID skepticism. So there's really been no recompense for right-wing figures blasting vaccines, blasting COVID measures. And now we're kind of seeing that reap the natural, its natural end here with these local folks who actually do believe what's being doled out at the top. Yeah. I mean, Herman Cain's a great example. Another one is uh, Bill Montgomery, who is one of the founders of Turning Points USA with Charlie Kirk, who also died of COVID-19 last July. And that has not kept Charlie Kirk from pushing every coronavirus vaccine fantasy under the sun. There's just no recognition of anything resembling a responsibility to their own supporters, to their own listeners and viewers. It's really disgraceful. Right. And something you mentioned earlier, which I think underscores the depravity of this whole situation is you said unironically that you've started to lose count of the number of these guys who in recent days and weeks have started to succumb to COVID-19 after waging crusade after crusade to their listeners about how you should not get the coronavirus vaccines. Do you have even a rough tally or estimate of how many of these people fall into this trend, not going back to the beginning of this pandemic, but in recent weeks when vaccines have been readily available and free? 
I think it's about half a dozen or so. I mean, there are just uh, so many of them. And this has nothing of the fact of God knows how many people whose names we will never know who were listening to these people, taking what they were saying on the air as gospel, or at least the very least reinforcement of their already simmering political inclinations, did not get vaccinated and ended up getting sick and God forbid dying. We're not even talking about that human cost. There is almost no way to actually calculate. So the thing that I keep coming back to when I think about the pandemic is this. Conservatives have spent decades telling their supporters, telling their viewers that the mainstream press cannot be trusted. You can't trust the New York Times. You can't trust the Daily Beast. You can't trust ABC or CNN. They will all lie to you, and only right-wing media sources will tell you the truth. This was very effective as a political strategy. It was wildly lucrative as a business strategy for all of these media figures. But that brings with it a very particular moral responsibility. Now you're the one that these people depend on for information. They're not going to get information from the Times or CNN or the Daily Beast or what have you. You've made sure of that. So now you've got to tell them, oh, there's a deadly pandemic coming. This is what you need to do to protect yourself. Instead, what they did was they went along with Donald Trump. They said it was a media hoax and a big lie. And then from there, they went off bashing masks and lockdowns and the vaccines once they became available. At every turn, they have done everything they can to keep their own audience members from being safe. And it seems to have worked out fine for all of the ones who aren't themselves ending up dead uh, because they aren't taking their own lives. There was a bit of hype for Fox News uh, earlier this year when it seemed like some anchors may have been turning the corner and may have been... Oh, this was so stupid. Yeah, yeah. So tell us about that little tongue bath they got before appearing not to do anything different. Some journalists, nobody on this podcast, but some of them have a very bad habit of assuming that a little counterintuitive snippet that they see coming across their Twitter feed indicates that a massive change has happened on a cable news network that they almost never watch. And that, I think, is what happened here. So you're referring to Sean Hannity, the Fox's uh, current longest-serving primetime hosts. And he, back on July 19th, did a segment in which he urged viewers to take COVID seriously and said he believes in the science of vaccination. He didn't tell his viewers they should get vaccinated. He didn't tell them that these vaccines that we have are safe and reliable and will keep you from dying. All he said was he takes COVID seriously. He believes in the science of uh, vaccination. He said that in the middle of an extensive segment about how it is wrong for colleges and universities to require their students to get vaccinated. He did it on a program that itself is, is sandwiched between two other shows, the one, one of Tucker Carlson and, and the one of Laura Ingram that have been even more hostile towards the vaccines. But that 30-second snippet was passed around on Twitter. It went viral. You had journalists and political pundits who really should know better 
who felt the need to give attaboys to Sean Hannity about this. Joe Biden ended up saying something nice about Sean Hannity and Fox News that day. I don't know if he specifically said it about Sean Hannity. He said that some people on Fox had gotten religion. And this was was while Steve Ducey was being actually a little bit more specific. But I, I, yes, it goes without saying, like, Lots of people saw this. They thought it would be it was a big change in the network's tone. It wasn't even in the context of what happened. It is the sort of thing that ended up as the lead item in political playbook, political playbook as the, the monologue of the night. And you had various CNN hosts praising uh, Sean Hannity, saying that it's something to be applauded. It was very little. And then what we saw after that was, was a huge backlash against him and him sort of doubling down on criticism of the vaccines. Right. It barely took 24 hours for him to go on his radio show, which is not directly Fox News affiliated to talk about how that he's actually not saying you have to get vaccinated. Yeah, well, and then later in the week, he was doing the same thing on his Fox show, saying, I never told anyone to get a vaccine. The thing about these Fox hosts is they don't need your attaboys. As I said before, they are working with an audience that has only contempt for the mainstream press. It is not in their interest to be praised by mainstream journals. So what happened to Sean Hannity was after he was wrongly portrayed by journalists and pundits as uh, encouraging vaccination, he started getting attacked from the right. He started getting shots from right-wing hosts who were telling their viewers, Sean Hannity's gone soft on us. And then he needed to furiously backpedal because he was afraid of losing control of his own audience. So he ends up on his radio show, on his Fox show, saying, I've never told anyone to get a vaccine. And then from then on, it was interesting. When Sean Hannity made those initial comments, he, he had really only talked about vaccines about three times in the three weeks before. But after getting called out by the right, for being too pro-vaccine, he started doing much more coverage. He ran, uh, our count was 30 different segments about vaccines over the three weeks that followed that. And in 27 of those segments, he directly undermined the vaccine or the effort to get people vaccinated. Repeatedly, almost two dozen times, suggesting that the vaccines are unnecessary or even dangerous. He got on not just the same page, not just the same sentence, but the same word as people like fellow Fox News compatriots, Laura Ingram, Tucker Carlson, Brian Kilmeade. We can keep running down the list. The marching order was set before it was even had to be issued. Yeah, the coverage got worse. Like, because he got praised inaccurately, he felt the need to prove his right-wing bona fides. And the way you do that is by telling your view, convincing your viewers that it's okay if you decide not to get the shots. That's the thing I want to underscore here. After he got this scintilla of fleeting, lamestream media praise, you showed that it is not an exaggeration. You can actually document this with the numbers and with the actual breakdown analysis of the segments on Fox News, not just Hannity's show, that after that happened, Fox's coverage of this got worse. It got more irresponsible. It got more implicitly, if not explicitly, anti-coronavirus vaccine. Yeah, I mean, I think this is what we've seen since 
late last year. Since Fox got that backlash from declaring that Joe Biden had won the election and Donald Trump went after the network and told everybody to switch to OAN and Newsmax. Fox's right, even further right-wing competitors. What Fox learned from that is that they cannot let their competitors get too far to their right, or they will lose viewership. They will lose market share to those competitors. And so once there was the hint of the notion that Fox might be becoming more reasonable about vaccines... They started getting hit from the right, and then they had to double down on their bad coverage, or they felt it was necessary to double down on their bad coverage. It's so funny that vaccines seem to be this one topic with its own momentum that's so far ahead of even the biggest voices on the right that I think Donald Trump recently at a rally indicated support for vaccines and got booed. And it sounds similar to what Hannity is experiencing here, where the actual momentum is coming from places like OANN. It's coming from weird Twitter feeds, and it's something that actually has these more established right-wing figures chasing the crazies. Right. Like not to let these morally bankrupt aristocrats off the hook entirely. That's not what we're doing here. But they wouldn't be doing this if their audiences by the millions weren't demanding it. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think to some extent they create the demand, right? I mean, they demonstrate the sort of irresponsible propagandistic coverage then their audience comes to demand it, and that requires them to double down and become more and more extreme. And if they don't, someone else will. The market will be filled by someone, them. And so they're really both responding to the demand and, and creating it in the first place, I think. Matt, in your study of this topic, is there any data or actual measurability you've been able to graft upon how destructive this anti-vax propaganda on places like Fox News and Fox Business and other major organs of conservative media actually has been? Obviously, this does have massive real-world consequences, but is there any chart or any research that you've been able to produce or have seen that reliably paints a portrait of exactly how deleterious this has been? I mean, I think you see it in the incredibly high percentage of Republicans who say they do not want to be vaccinated and will not be vaccinated relative to Democrats. That is straight up the result of a right-wing media infrastructure that has been telling them for months that the vaccines may not be safe, may not be effective, and giving them permission slips not to go get two shots and potentially save their lives. You know, it's very easy to imagine a world in which that didn't happen. It's very easy to imagine a world in which people like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson and Laura Ingram just said, you know what? Donald Trump gave us these fantastic vaccines. He's 100% responsible for them. They're great. They'll keep you from dying. We should all get them. Then we don't have to wear masks and the libs won't try to shut down restaurants anymore and everything will be easy to imagine that world existing. But it is not the world we live in. Instead, they made a decision to undermine and oppose the vaccine rollout 
straight down the line. And we are living with the results today. Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. This has been disturbing and interesting as always. Been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Since we've been discussing on this episode the surge of anti-vaccine right-wing radio personalities who have been recently dying from the coronavirus, now seems like an appropriate time to dive into the strange saga of John Pierce. Kelly, remind our audience who this John Pierce guy is, and does he or does he not have COVID? I think it's still a galactic mystery at this time. (laughs) Yeah, our listeners might be familiar with John Pierce because he's represented a constellation of right-wing figures, from Rudy Giuliani to Kyle Rittenhouse to now a number of Capitol defendants. Mr. Pierce is also a pretty vocal anti-vaxxer. He's tweeted a lot that he wouldn't take the vaccination, even if uh, the army forced him to. He's been very skeptical about COVID and its um, and its dangers. And all of a sudden now, he is missing from the 17 capital cases that he is bringing in court. There's some ambiguity about why he is missing. One of his associates recently told a judge that Pierce is on a ventilator with COVID in the hospital, unable to communicate. But there are conflicting narratives. Another associate indicated that he might have had dehydration and exhaustion unrelated to COVID. There was even a suggestion that he might have been in a car accident. So wherever this guy is, he's not in court. And this is a problem for his clients because it's not clear who's going to represent him now. The only other very active person in his law firm, which has been hemorrhaging lawyers, is someone who he's not barred. He just passed law school and he might never pass the bar because he's currently facing, I think, 15 charges for allegedly defrauding an elderly woman. So It's not clear that this man can pick up these high-profile capital riot cases. Do we have any idea what's going to happen to these more than a dozen January 6th riot defendants now that their lawyer is in this weird Twilight Zone episode? It's not entirely clear. You know, it's possible he recovers, he bounces right back and starts representing them again. A lot of Capitol Riot defendants also have um, public defenders, people who were initially appointed before um, by the courts before these folks brought on uh, personal attorneys. So there are people who can step in and pick up the slack. They won't be without an attorney. But it's not a great situation, is it? If you're trying to fight a pretty high stakes legal case and your lawyer is gone, it's not a desirable outcome, certainly. Are there a lot of people who think that this guy's kind of running a maybe, I don't know if scam is the right word, but what kind of individual lawyer takes on this many defendants in this kind of situation? A lawyer who has attached himself to a lot of high-profile cases with a lot of high-profile fundraising potential. Pierce has caught some flack for fundraising that he did for the Kyle Rittenhouse case. I think he had a falling out with the Rittenhouse team or family because he certainly did spearhead a lot of fundraising. And I think there was some ambiguity about how exactly that was making it back to Kyle Rittenhouse. Every once in a while, people get the lawyers they deserve. And just to tie this up, I can't believe this has a tie-in with where we started at the beginning of this episode. Kelly, does John Pierce have any connection to the embattled chimp facility 
from the Alan Cummings story. Wouldn't you know it, John Pierce is the lawyer representing the embattled chimp facility that Alan Cumming was facing off against. John Pierce is representing the embattled chimpanzee owner who claims that Tonka the chimpanzee is dead and that her facility may have cremated the chimpanzee at a temperature that would not cook a turkey. They later revised that claim and said that it was a typo due to a petting zoo error. So that is another case that John Pierce is taking on and may not be able to represent going forward at this exact moment. Are we sure it's the same John Pierce? Yes. <laughs> John Pierce of Pierce Bainbridge. I did maybe a quadruple take. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, You've been looking at the same documents long enough that I think they start to form a singularity. And it's like, I'm hallucinating. No, same fellow. Is there any legal battle or court case you've been covering recently that does not somehow involve John Pierce? At this point, I would not at all be surprised. I covered that chimpanzee story because I wanted a break. And what would you know? It's There's no escaping, really, this set of folks. I'm going to Google this guy's name with every single court case I can think of in recent history. I want to see if he was on the OJ team. Google's name with every exotic animal, because that should surface those. Apparently, he takes those cases too. Right, right. I want to see if he was on the OJ team. I want to see if he helped get the Rosenbergs executed. I want to see if he helped defend Timothy McVeigh. Like, this guy is the Forrest Gump of our current reporting beats. It's like when you learn that Lynn Wood represented the guy who lost the defamation case against Elon Musk. That just, there are about five lawyers in this world. On that note, let's wrap up this episode of Fever Dreams from The Daily Beast. In future installments, we'll also be speaking to some awesome reporters and other colleagues at The Daily Beast and beyond, from politics, popular culture, and other overfed, underdeveloped institutions. We hope you'll subscribe to us on your preferred podcasting app and share the show on social media or at your family dinner table. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, I'm at Will Summer and Swin is at Swin24. Come say hello. This podcast is produced by Jesse Cannon with music by Brian Demiglio. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.